Uh, we are in the book of Hebrews. Uh, last week, we paused as we took a moment to really celebrate and highlight the role that God has given to parents. And so we, we took a, night, a day as we did our child affirmations um, and our child dedications and, and parent affirmations. Uh, so this week, we're going to move back into Hebrews. And so I'll just give a quick little reminder about where we're at and how we got to the part that we're at this morning. So the book of Hebrews is like a sermon letter. It's like a letter, and it's like a sermon. It's kind of both of them put together. It's written to a church that's been experiencing suffering, persecution, and just many trials. And so the church has begun to question its faith. And just kind of on a side note, uh, it's always good to have a side note in the very beginning within like the first two sentences. Uh, This is always what sin wants to do. God is always using trials in our life to build us, to strengthen us, to grow us, to mature us in our faith, to help us see him for all of his glory and his goodness and might and how he is faithful and provides for us. And sin, the indwelling sin just within us, and then Satan, the enemy outside of us, wants nothing more than for every trial to pervert and twist those purposes so that we would begin to doubt God's goodness doubt his faithfulness and as that doubt begins to settle in that we would then begin to deny him so that's where the church is they're wrestling right now are we going to continue in the faith are we going to keep believing in jesus the church is wrestling with going back to judaism after all in the first century judaism was a legal religion so if they went to that persecution will now go away and so they're wrestling with this And so the author is encouraging them to keep the faith, to continue to trust in Jesus. And so this sermon is really going to be a part one of either a part two or part three as we make our way just through chapter two. Because chapter two unpacks some words that the author used in chapter two, verse three. If you look in chapter two, verse three, he'll say, we have such a great salvation. And really the rest of chapter two is just unpacking this great, great salvation we have in jesus and so uh so that's where we're going to be as we go today and as we go through uh the next couple weeks um he's just going to remind us of the gospel and i hope you know that we regularly need to be reminded of the gospel do you know that sometimes i think we we go okay i got that jesus died jesus rose we're good to go um but we regularly needed, need to be reminded of the gospel. Let me just give you one reason why. When we do not rightly understand the problems around us, we will not rightly understand the solution. Does that make sense? If we don't understand the problem, we're not going to come to the right solution. Like, if you, enter, if you enter in your house, and as you go into your house, you see a puddle of water, and you go, oh, well, that's terrible. So you wipe up the puddle, is the problem been fixed? Maybe. It kind of depends on why the puddle's there. But if the puddle's there because you've got a leaky, fo- or a leaky pipe in the ceiling above you, and all you do is wipe up the water, you haven't dealt with the problem. You've only dealt with the symptom of the problem. And if you continue to go on, then eventually you're going to have much, much greater consequences. And so what the author is going to do, he's going to remind us of the gospel, the greatness of the gospel that we've been saved. And as he's doing that, 
He's just going to show us what the problem is around us and what the solution is and how Jesus Christ is our solution, is our hope, and the hope of all humanity. And so what I'm going to do is read chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, and I encourage you to stand as we read that. Here at Timberline, we stand at the reading. Uh, we do it for exercise, and we do it because we believe God's Word is inspired by the Spirit given to us for correction, rebuking, training, and righteousness. And we stand just really as a way to honor our God. Say, this book is different from every other book. So that's why we stand. Verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that we can come to your word. And Lord, as we look at this great salvation that you have given us, I pray that our hearts are encouraged. I pray that where there is sin, that there is conviction, that we would repent and worship you. I pray that Lord, we would grow in our faith this morning, our understanding of the world and humanity and what your son Jesus has done for us. I pray that we'd see what we have been saved from and who we have been saved to. And so God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so to start, we start in verse 5. First point, man was created to rule the world. Isn't that a fun first point? Every religion seeks to answer the question, why are we here? What do we do? Verse 5 tells us the author, or the author tells us the angels are not destined to rule the world. Now, if you're new, if you haven't been with us in the first part of chapter 1, the author has been talking about angels since chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through, and he'll do so all the way to the end of chapter 2. Now, when he mentions angels, that's a way to refer to the Old Covenant, to really Judaism in the Old Testament. It was, it's seen, we go to different texts and Acts and in Deuteronomy and various places where God used angels as an intermediary in bringing forth the Old Covenant. And so by referring to angels, he's referring to the old covenant. And so when he says angels are not going to be the ones who are going to be ruling this world, he's saying stop thinking about going back to the old covenant that was given to us by angels. Something much greater is here. And so if angels are not destined to rule the world, who is? Well, man is. And we see that as we go into verses 6 through 8. The author is going to quote Psalm chapter 8. Now, if you remember, January 24th, I believe, I preached on Psalm 8 because I knew we were going to be here on this Sunday. 
And we preached on Psalm 8 on Sanctity of Life Sunday. And in Psalm 8, it's written by David. He just praises God. He praises God for his might and his glory and his splendor, that he has created the heavens, that he sustains it all. He praises God for all that he does. But then he praises God also for the attention and the priority that is given to man. I mean, look at verses 6 through 8. This is David, and he's writing about how God treats man. He says, man is made temporarily lower than the angels. He says, man is crowned with glory and honor. Most likely referring to made in the very image of God. Man is given rule and dominion over creation. Do you remember Genesis 1? This passage harkens back. Harken, that's a fun word. When's the last time you used hearken? So this passage harkens back to Genesis 1. In fact, let me read Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on them. So God makes man, and he says, I make you to rule everything under the rule and authority of God. So that we're being reminded of the original intent in creation. Man was created to rule and share in the very glory of God. Humanity was created for greatness. And I think we know this. I think this resonates in the heart and the soul of every person. I mean, let me think about this. Is it because of a truth like this that we like the movies like Avengers? You see how we just worked Avengers right back into this? We can work that into almost every sermon. But think about it. Like as humans, we're captivated by those with God-like abilities and powers. I mean, we love hearing stories about humans who do amazing accomplishments and feats. We love the stories of Samson. We love the stories of David and Goliath. Do we not? We love these people. They do these incredible, amazing things. I think there's something in us that we know that we were created by God to rule. But now look at the second half of verse 8. It seems that the author knows that an objection is coming. The author knows that we're kind of beginning to shake our head going, I don't really know about this. And so the text says, at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So there's a problem. The problem is man doesn't rule. The problem is man is not crowned with glory and honor. In fact, rather than glory and honor, it looks like man is crowned with trials and pains and sufferings and persecutions, does it not? That's what the church is looking at. Right now, they're struggling. They're just trying to stay alive. The whole government is against them. They're wrestling with what we do, and that's just within the church. Outside the church, we have disease, war, famine, death, pain. We have sins that cause us to lust, loneliness, depression. We see evil and chaos just running through this world. Well, just like every religion must answer, why are we here? 
What do we do? Then the, every religion also must take account for why the world is the way it is. What's the problem with the world? Why does it function the way it does? And so that's where we go now. And so the author is going to show us that under the first Adam, man's rule and exalted position was forfeited. So there's a doctrine, and we don't use big words all the time here, but we do use some like propitiation, and you guys know what that means, right? It means, see, so we, we try to use just a few words, but we use them a whole lot so that you will um, know them. I don't know how much we're going to use this one at all times, but federal headship is something that we need to know. Federal headship, it really deals with representation. It's about one person acting on behalf of other persons. And according to the Bible, there's two federal heads. There's Adam, and then there's a last Adam. There's Jesus. There's two heads of humanity. And under this point, we're going to look at, we're going to look at, um, look at Adam, the first Adam, created in the garden. And then under the next point, we're going to look at Jesus, the last Adam. So Adam, the first created man, was made to be the federal head of all humanity. And so there's different passages in the New Testament that flesh this out. Romans 5 is one of them. And so I just want to read a couple passages from Romans 5. But I encourage you, go read Romans 5, 12 through the end of the chapter. Just go to the end of the chapter. I think it's 19, maybe 20, but this is what verse 12 says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that one man? Thank you. You guys just know this. Even the kids know it. So sin comes in through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all of sin. So why has death and sin come into the world? It came through who? This is where we all do group participation. It comes through who? Perfect. So, it's, so Yeah, it's Adam. Adam is the representation, the federal head of all humanity. So what he does is going to affect everyone that comes after him. So when he sinned, we now share in his guilt. We have become sinners. We share in those consequences. And we are also sinners and we're also under the punishment of death. Um, look at Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. Let me read this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the one trespass, the one sin that Adam did led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So this is where we're comparing the first Adam with Jesus, the last Adam, and then verse 19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, who's the one man? The disobedience, right, it's Adam, the first Adam. Many were made sinners, so by the one man, this is Jesus, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Uh, uh, Paul's just putting them side by side. Adam did this, these are the consequences. Jesus does this, all who are in him, this is true for them. Do you see that? Adam represents humanity his actions affect all that come after adam all that come from him thus we are all born as sinners in this world do you know that that's why 
Now, why are we the way we are? Because we come from Adam. And we see this truth of representation lived out. I mean, when a president makes war on another country, is it just the president who's at war with that other country now? <laughs> Sometimes we'd like to hope so. But it's all that that president represents, the country that he represents, is now at war with him against that country. So we see this type of representation. Adam represents humanity, and thus we share in the guilt and the consequences of Adam because we come from Adam. This is why, real quick, a little more side notes today. Um, you ever hear that person when you're talking about um, salvation and about how we need to go and tell people in the world about the gospel of Jesus, and they say, but wait a minute. What about the innocent person on the other side of the earth that's never heard the gospel? Are they going to go to hell or are they going to go to heaven? I mean, they never heard the gospel. They're innocent. But do you see where the problem lies? They're not innocent. Who do they come from? They come from Adam. This is why there's no person who's innocent. It doesn't matter where you're born. We all come from Adam. Therefore, we all are born with that sinful nature. Therefore, we all share in the guilt and the consequences of Adam. We see this representation lived out throughout the Old Testament. We'll actually see it in punishments given to Israel at times as representation. Um, so it's lived out much throughout the Old Testament. So why are we not crowned with glory and honor? Why is the church persecuted? Why do you and I, we struggle with anger and rage, lust, insecurities, loneliness, depression, so much more? It's because we come from Adam. And we need to know this. Under Adam, humanity will never obtain glory and honor. You know that? Under Adam, we will never obtain glory and honor. Do you remember when Adam was in the garden? Adam's in the garden, and God gives one command. He says, you can eat of all these trees, but there's one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. So every day Adam eats, he's worshiping God as he's choosing to eat of all these trees and not choosing to eat of this tree. Every time he eats, everything he does is an act of worship as he obeys God and does not come to this tree. But then we know what happens. Satan slithers in as a serpent whispers in the lies, and he says, you know, you could have all the glory and all the honor that you want right now. You don't need to share in God's glory. God's holding back on you. He's question Satan's questioning God's goodness. He's questioning his faithfulness. And as Adam begins to ponder this, he takes the fruit because Adam saw that he could obtain greatness and honor apart from God. That's what happened in the garden. Rather than obeying God and sharing in His glory, he said, I can obtain this in my own might, in my own power, by taking this fruit. And this works-based righteousness has been a stumbling block ever since. It's easy for us to think that our worth comes from our actions. The more you do, the more you're worth. If you work hard, spend time with your family, help out at soup kitchens, advocate for social justice, feed the poor, you are a good person. 
you get good grades in school, if you're athletic, if you're popular, if you look and act in a certain way, you're worthy of honor. Those are the lies that we believe. Those are lies that feed so much of the things that we do. But Adam serves as a reminder to you, to I, to all humanity, that in our strength we cannot obtain greatness. But that when we seek to obtain honor and glory apart from God, we suffer the consequences of sin and death. So that's what the author is doing here. By saying man was created, but there's a problem. We don't see the world subjected to God. The ultimate problem we face is that we are in Adam and therefore under the wrath of God. As long as we are under this Adam, we're marked for death. This is what parents need to teach your children where we come from. We come from Adam. That's why we're sinful. That's why we're born with a sinful nature. That's why we need forgiveness. And therefore the solution cannot be turning to Judaism. If Judaism keeps us under Adam, then it's of no hope. It doesn't offer us any help. And so the author, when he says, you know, angels are not destined to rule, stop turning to Judaism. Don't look back to Adam to solve your problem. The problem is you're under Adam. You need a greater Adam. You need a better Adam. You need someone who can rescue you. Turning to Judaism is like wiping up the fl- water on the floor when the problem is the leaky pipe in the ceiling. It will only result in more consequences. And so now we're going to turn to Jesus as the second federal head in humanity. In the last Adam, we, share, we are saved to share in his rule and glory for all of eternity. So under, we were created to rule under the first Adam. We've all forfeited it. We've lost it. But then comes a second Adam. And when he saves us, we now share in glory and rule with him. The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. But then comes the second Adam, Jesus. First Corinthians will also hold up both Adam and Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You see the difference? The contrast there? Romans 5.19, we looked at this a few moments ago. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. If you come from Adam, you're a sinner. But by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Why are you made righteous? Because of one man's obedience. Because of what he did. Not because of what you do, but because of what he does. When we believe in him, by grace, we are now made righteous. Okay, now we'll go to Hebrews and we'll see how this is fleshed out. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So this verse, this verse has a lot in it. We're going to unpack it. We're going to go through it just little by little. First point there, Jesus was made lower than the angels. So what does that mean? What's that referring to? It refers to the incarnation. That means that Jesus became flesh. So we have Jesus as the Son of God, and he's existed eternally as the Son of God. 
But then he comes in the flesh, and when's the first time in the book of Hebrews we come to the name Jesus? It's not a trick question. Chapter 2, verse 9, when it refers to his incarnation. When did Jesus become Jesus? When did the Son take on the name Jesus? At the incarnation, when he was named by Mary. So now, we have Jesus comes in, and he's born into this world in the flesh, but his birth is different than you and I, right? It's that crazy thing called the virgin birth. You hear of it? Now, have you ever wondered how important that really is? There are many people today that will say, um, listen, we don't need to die on every hill. We, if people don't want to believe in the virgin birth, that's okay. Like, we're just not going to die on that one. We'll, we'll let them have that. We'll compromise on that one. Okay, so play this out. What happens if we compromise on the virgin birth? What if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin? What's the problem? Who's he under? He's under Adam. And if he's under Adam, then we are not saved by Jesus. We need someone who comes from a different line. We need someone who's not from Adam, but comes different to save us from Adam. So if you ever hear someone say, is the virgin birth that important? Yes! If you lose that, you lose Jesus. If you lose Jesus, you lose salvation. We lose our hope. We lose our life. We are destined for the wrath of God for all of eternity. So we don't compromise on the virgin birth. Is that clear? Just making sure? That's one we don't ever compromise on. And if your children or someone goes, but why is it so important? Explain this Adam thing. Representation. Go to Romans 5. It's so helpful there. It's because Jesus is born of a virgin that he comes to rescue us. That he doesn't have the sinful nature that you and I are all with. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life so that he would save us from condemnation. So that's point one. He was made lower than the angels. He came and he suffered death. He suffered all the trials and the pains that you and I experience as a human. He was made lower than the angels. He shared in our experiences. Next, he was crowned with glory and honor. Now wait a minute. That was the original intent for man at creation, right? That's what Psalm 8 is about. Psalm 8, David's looking back going, God, you're amazing. You've made everything. You give this attention to man. This is incredible. And yet we know that man will never obtain crown and glory under Adam. But now we're told this second Adam, this last Adam has come named Jesus, and he has glory and honor. Why? And this is, this is a big part. Why does he have glory and honor? Look at the text. Because of the suffering of death. What's he referring to? It's all right. We can go back to participation time. What's he referring to? Starts with the cra, ends in os. Right? 
is referring to the cross. Now just, we got to pause for a moment. What's the problem that the, that the author is addressing right now? What's the problem? The church is experiencing pain and trials, right? They're trying to figure out how do we get out of this? How do we stop facing this trials? I mean, this hurts. Now, all of a sudden, the way the author is bringing comfort to the church, he's reminding them of the gospel, reminding of the one who actually saves them. And he says, remember how he saves. Remember why he's crowned with glory and honor. It's through suffering. The path to the crown is through the cross. And that's what we're going to unpack a lot more next week. But we see this also lived out or, or preached by Paul in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. Let me read that. So this is Paul. He talks about how Jesus came in the flesh, and he says, And being found in human form, this is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, now there's a big word that's going to connect the death on the cross to what happens next. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So why is Jesus exalted and given a name above every name? Why? Because of the cross. He humbled. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the, de- obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, he's exalted. Here in Hebrews, we have Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of How does Jesus obtain the crown? It's through the cross. Again, we'll come back to that more and more next week because in verse 10, the author is going to use this word referring to Jesus as our example, as our trailblazer, as our pioneer, the one who saves us all through suffering. So the author is going to be recalibrating the church, and we need this here in America. We need our hearts and our heads and our minds recalibrated to rightly understand suffering in this world, the role it is, and why is it, it is inevitable for Christians, not that we look for it, but that it will be used by God for many, many purposes. But for now, today, we see that this second Adam, really the last Adam, he's obtained glory and honor. And so what does that mean to us? Well, the last point there is Jesus is the grace of God. Look at the last line in verse 9. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Isn't that good news? The death of Jesus is the grace of God. Jesus is God's grace to humanity. You see it right there. So by the grace of God, he might taste death. So Jesus going to the cross is God's grace to you and I. He came to the earth. He lived. He died. He stood in your place and my place, took our punishment because we are under the first Adam. When it says he tasted death, it means he fully experience it we're not talking like appetizer we're not talking like dabbing you know your cucumber or whatever into some some ranch dressing or some nasty blue cheese i go out to eat with chris we, we, we do lunch quite a bit he gets blue cheese. i don't even like like ranch hardly 
But blue cheese, it's like moldy cheese. It's like even worse than regular cheese. Anyways, that's just, it's aged. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything about that. We'll just, we'll just let everyone just understand what just happened. All right. Um, okay, so to, to bring this back, the first Adam, he tried to obtain glory and honor by his strength and power, right? That's what he did. I'll take the fruit. I'll get my glory. That's what you and I try to do in our sinfulness. But the last Adam has come, and by suffering, he has obtained glory and honor. And now by his grace, he offers it to you and I. And guess what happens when we believe in him, when we receive him? Look at verse 11. We'll get to this more next week. But he says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. When we believe in Jesus, when we receive the grace of God, we become brothers we become part of the family of God. And so Romans 8 will say it like this. We're co-heirs with Christ. Meaning all that Jesus has, he now shares with us. Why? Because he's the federal head. The first Adam, all that he is and all that he does is shared with the rest of humanity. But now when we believe in this last Adam, who's obtained glory and honor, when we believe in him, we share in his glory and honor for all of eternity, which is why Revelation 3.21 will say, we will sit with him on his throne as he sits with the Father on his throne, and we will sit and be with him for all of eternity. Isn't that amazing? We don't obtain glory and honor by anything by our power. It's all by grace. The original intent of God was never that you and I would obtain glory apart from God. It's always that it would be through the grace of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. And so now, when we look back at verses 6 through 8, we see that we actually understand them pointing to Jesus. We now read Psalm 8 differently. When it says, what is man that you are mindful of, or the son of man that you care for him? We see Jesus as the Son of Man. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And he makes that connection for us by quoting that again in verse 9. He's put everything in subjection to him. Ultimately, Psalm 8 is about Jesus. And the only way it's true of us is if we're under Jesus, if we've believed in Him, if we've received His grace, if we've realized that our problem is that we have a sinful nature because we come from the first Adam, therefore we need to be saved. But we do agree when we look at verse 8. At the moment, it doesn't always look like everything's under His rule, right? That's true. At the moment... It doesn't look like everything's under Jesus' rule. So the last point, a day is coming when Jesus' present rule will be finally consummated. You might know of this truth. So Jesus comes once in the beginning when he came to die, and he'll come again. And we live in between the two comings of Jesus. At the first coming of Jesus, we, re we read all throughout the Gospels that his kingdom was established. 
Jesus is ruling. He sits right now at the right hand of the throne of God. We see that in the Gospels. We see that in Ephesians. We see that in Corinthians. We see that in Revelations. We can go through so many books of the Bible where Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God. And we're told that he is bringing all things under his authority. And right now, we still see evil. We'll still see chaos. We still see the church being persecuted and undergoing trials. But there's a day coming when he comes again. And on that day, his present rule will be fully consummated, meaning it will be unable to be missed. Meaning every single person will acknowledge him, will bow before him. And in fact, that passage that we read in Philippians 2, it takes us right to that. I mean, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is now the rest of that passage. So that at the name of Jesus, we're now talking the full consummation of his rule, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? That's where we're going. It's true right now, and he's mysteriously in his sovereignty bringing all things under his rule, but there's a day coming. When he will return, his kingdom will be obvious. All other kingdoms will be crushed. Those who are still under the first Adam will be sentenced to death and destruction because they've not believed in him. And all those who are under the last Adam who have received him by grace will dwell in his kingdom for all of eternity. Now remember, this is part one of either a two or three part message. But the author, he's coming alongside a persecuted church who's wrestling with pain. And he's saying, look, your pain and your suffering is real, but it's temporary. It's temporary. Your pain and suffering is preparing for you a weight of glory. We'll get more into that next week. But in fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author will say, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We know that, right? Your kids will testify of that, right? When you discipline them, no one has fun during that. But we do it because later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Your pain is real. Your suffering is real. And sin and Satan want to, want to pervert and twist that pain for evil purposes, and yet God is using it for good to bring about a harvest of righteousness. He reminds us that Jesus is our federal head who has rescued us from Adam. He tasted death for us so that ultimately whatever pain, whatever experience we're having now, it will come to an end and we will dwell with Christ forever in the new heavens and new earth. A day is coming when Jesus will return and suffering and persecution will cease. That's what the author is helping us to see right now. That's how he's coming alongside this church. Right now, they're, they're paying attention to the wrong problem. They're looking at pain and trials as if that's the problem. And therefore, when we think that's the problem, we try to seek, how do we escape that? We go to Judaism. We stay under Adam. But he's recalibrating their minds. He's saying, that's not the problem at all. Jesus has already dealt with the problem. And now he's calling us to trust in him. So that when he returns, we will experience everlasting life with him for all of eternity. So he says, keep the faith, run the race. Jesus is your hope. We'll come and we'll build on this next week. So this is really just 
like the appetizer of next week, where he sets it up, and he moves us to what Christ has done for us. Um, We're going to pray, and then we're going to go into communion. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus of a virgin, that he would live a perfect life and die as the grace of God so that by grace we who believe him would be saved, would be saved from the first Adam brought under the federal headship of Jesus, that we would now have his righteousness and we would be guaranteed eternal life for all of eternity. God, we praise you for that. I pray that we would see this truth and that just as we've looked at your gospel, at what you have done for us, and why it is so important that your son has come of a virgin, our hearts would be encouraged. That we would not turn to any man-made salvation or religion, but that we would only put our hope in your son, Jesus. Father, we love you. In your name, amen.